from the E. Craig Wall Senior College of Business at Coastal Carolina University and social distancing from my bedroom, this is Beyond the Wall. I'm your host, Peter Gaska. Today, I want to start by talking about phenylthiorea. That's right, we're talking about phenylthiorea. Now, before I launch into why I want to talk about phenylthiorea, let's just go ahead and address the elephant in the room that I know our smart academic listeners are screaming into their phones saying, you are pronouncing it wrong. And yes, like so many other things to disagree about on the internet, like eating Tide Pods or which Hemsworth brother is the most talented, it's Liam, by the way, completely underrated. There also seems to be a great deal of disagreement about how to pronounce phenylthiorea. Take, for instance, going to YouTube to find the correct pronunciation of phenylthiorea just confused the matter worse. For instance, I got this. Phenylthiorea. Phenylthiorea. And I got this. Phenylthiorea. Phenylthiorea. And finally, I got this. Phenylthiourea. Phenylthiourea. Oh, the joys of the internet. Thank you for solving nothing. I'll stick with phenylthiourea. I mean, because heck, I mean, it's kind of fun to say. So what is phenylthiourea? Well, a few of you out there are scoffing at such a silly question. Because, of course, phenylthiourea is an organosulfurthiourea containing a phenyl ring. Pfft, duh. And though it may not be so remarkable, the story behind it kind of is. In 1931, when DuPont chemist Arthur Fox accidentally released a cloud of fine crystalline phenylthiorium, a colleague nearby complained about a bitter taste. While Fox, who was closer and should have received a stronger dose, tasted absolutely nothing. While Fox continued to test the taste buds of assorted family and friends and eventually set the groundwork for a future genetic study. And what we know now is that about 70% of people can taste phenylthiorea, while the other 30% have zero reaction whatsoever. And it all seems to be genetic. I mean, you can. You can, in fact, buy tasting strips on Amazon and go test it yourself. And that's exactly what my family did because we're nuts about science and, you know, you're bored as hell at home. So, but here's the crazy thing. So I fell into the 30% camp tasting nothing. I mean, it did just taste like sticking a piece of paper in my mouth. Had zero taste, just this annoying reminder of what it was like to be five years old. For my kids and my wife, well, they spat and ran for water. And in the case of my daughter, actually rinsed and gargled with juice. That's how bad and disgusting the taste was for them. Now, I was stuck in this weird position of actually wondering, were they joking? How could something so bold and pronounced to them completely go by me unnoticed. So that got me thinking, actually. I mean, like really, really thinking. Here I was with two people who shared exactly half of my genetic makeup, and I was experiencing something completely and wildly different from them. I mean, how many other tastes and smells was I missing? I also thought back to the viral event of 2015. You remember that year? Yeah, it seemed like a generation ago. I miss you, 2015. Well, anyways. Uh, Well, that was the year when the blue-black dress meme made its circuit. Now, if you're not familiar, then Google it because it's visual. I'm not going to try to explain it here on this podcast. 
but I saw a blue-black dress in that picture, while some of you, incorrectly I may add, saw a white-gold dress. I jest at being incorrect because, again, my family was completely divided on this. Not just divided, but it caused tension and passionate debate. Half of us was seeing blue-black, half of us was seeing white-gold. Then, back in 2018, I miss you too, 2018. Well, there was a viral video circulated with just one word. Laurel, 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 Laurel. Now, I don't know about you, but I hear the word Yanny as clearly as I hear the word uh-oh when something breaks in my house. But I know some of you hear the word Laurel. Most people, and two people in my family, hear the word Laurel. I mean, it's uncanny because I, I just don't hear it in my ear. It's not even close. I can't even say I even slightly hear the word Laurel. So again, here's the thing. There was no correlation between any of these events. It wasn't a boy-girl split. It wasn't old and young. It was, in fact, usually me versus the rest of my family. But all of these experiments in viral media culture and my personal experiment with phenylthiorrhea helped me to a profound understanding. We all see things differently. I know, right? Duh. Of course we all see things differently. But these are genetic things. These are just things that we cannot understand because we differ from other people genetically and can't experience what they're experiencing. But here's the thing. Here's why I'm talking about phenylthiorrhea and dresses at TJ Maxx and either a Greek-born American keyboardist or half of a famous comedy duo from the 1930s or 1940s is because when you apply this understanding to our current state of affairs and specifically about the racial discussions we have and continue to have, we can better understand why this conversation is so important. Because when we say that white privilege is real or not, or we say that racism exists or does not, we have to at least have these uncomfortable conversations because for many people, they get very defensive and angry because it doesn't occur to them. But when you realize that just because we don't see it, just because it hasn't happened to us or within our bubble, doesn't mean it isn't real. For me, even though I see a blue-black dress and hear the word Yanny with unmistakable clarity, and I taste absolutely nothing but a blanched piece of paper. I have to acknowledge that others see a white gold dress, or that they hear the word laurel, or that they taste something so profoundly disgusting that they are willing to rinse their mouth out with pineapple juice. All of my feelings are real, but so are all the feelings of other people who have different opinions. This is the same with racism which is why we need to continue the conversation until we can all understand that while we may see it from different perspectives, it still exists and it is still harming our fellow citizens, our families and friends all around the world. Our guest today, the Vice President of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at Coastal Carolina University, Dr. Atia Stokes-Brown, is going to continue that worthy conversation with us. A conversation about race and inclusion, not about black and blue dresses, or the word Yanny. Stay tuned. Our guest today is an accomplished scholar, a published author, and from what I've discovered, a lover and gifted performer of modern dance. 
Dr. Atiyah Stokes-Brown is the Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Coastal Carolina University, a position that was established in 2006 as part of the university's strategic plan to provide leadership, support, and resources for initiatives that strategically and proactively promote an institutional culture of inclusiveness and equity. That's a mouthful. While she just joined us in 2018, Dr. Stokes-Brown is no stranger to the development and promotion of diversity and inclusion programs, as she worked in a variety of similar roles at Bucknell University in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. She has also authored and written several articles and book chapters broadly centered on the political incorporation of women and racial and ethnic groups into the American political system, as well as issues of representation. She's also published her own book in 2012 titled The Politics of Race in Latino Communities, Walking the Colored Line. She joins us today to discuss the topic of diversity and inclusion, especially in light of the recent civil events and protests that have uh, erupted across the globe, sparked mainly by the death of George Floyd, but really highlighting decades of social inequality and legal and political pressures that have adversely affected minority communities. Welcome, Dr. Stokes-Brown, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here with you, Pete. Great. Um, well, thanks. So let's start by asking why really, like, just broadly, what are your take on the events of the past couple of weeks? <sighs> that's, a, that's a really big question. Um, and for me, the, the last two weeks um, have felt a lot like we are in a moment that is unprecedented, right? And if we remove COVID, we, COVID-19, we know that we are definitely in unprecedented times. Um, but just thinking about sort of the civil unrest and really dealing with issues of white supremacy and racism, uh, again, it's this tension of feeling like we're in a moment that's unprecedented, but yet at the same time, there's a bit of deja vu, right? So we've been here as a nation before. And um, for, for many people in communities, particularly African-American community, dealing with issues of um, um, injustice, um, police brutality, um, just violence against black and brown bodies. Um, this, is, this isn't new, right? Um, and unfortunately, we have not progressed as a nation where we have done our due diligence to, to, to really figure out why, why do we keep sort of engaging in this cycle? And why are we, um, why are we terrorizing our, our, our citizens and our brothers and sisters in this way? Um, so, so it really has been a difficult moment. It's a really difficult last two weeks in that I think for a lot of people, there has been perhaps based on their lens, a moment of, oh my goodness, I can't believe this is happening. Um, but yet for so many other people, it's almost, it, it's again, you know, this is happening yet again. We are doing this yet again. Uh, and then of course, layer on top of that, sort of the, the emotional and psychological effects of being um, isolated from one another as a result of COVID-19, I think that, you know, now leads us to this moment where, where people absolutely want to be vocal and active um, and, and present uh, and, and communicate with each other the, the importance of understanding that this is a moment that can't be ignored, uh, that this is an issue that we have not properly dealt with as a nation. And if not now, um, when are we ever really going to be able to get at the root of the issue, right? And the root of the issue um, embedded in the death of George Floyd, as well as uh, Aubrey Ahmad and Breonna Taylor and so many others, the root of the issue is um, really respect, autonomy, um, and um, you know, equality for black and brown bodies. Um, and, and that's embedded in our history. 
And we've not, as a country, done a very good job of really um, admitting that history and doing the deep, deep work to change our psychological perspectives about black and brown people as a result of that history. Are you, are you optimistic uh, that this time might be a little bit different given you know, all the things that are happening, the visibility, mm -hmm. the global uh, attention, you know, it was, it was, I, I read on the, or saw on the news the other day that, you know, the top five selling books on Amazon right now are, you know, story, uh, books about racism, books about anti-racism, mm -hmm. uh, books about uh, black history. So it seems like people are taking notice, but I get where you're coming from because, you know, being about the same age, we've seen this <laughs> time and time again, it's like mm -hmm. rinse, rather mm -hmm. repeat. And here we are. So are you optimistic or how do you feel about the future? I am optimistic. Um, I, I think it honestly does us no good not to be optimistic. And um, I, I'm taking this quote from someone that I heard, and I can't remember the individual right now, but I do want to give them credit for it. Um, but I heard someone say in an interview, um, I come from a people, uh, you know, a people that it's important to be optimistic. Optimism and hope for the future is part of who we are. Um, so I do want to honor that. And so for me, yes, I have to be optimistic because without that optimism, um, we wouldn't be where we are now, right? Um, and so many other groups um, from under, you know, individuals from under, uh, underrepresented groups or marginalized groups wouldn't have um, made the advances that they've made in American society without that, without that optimism. So I am optimistic. And I think what also makes me optimistic is that I do think there is a transformation and change in the understanding of how to deal with the problem. So I was talking with a colleague and another colleague used this um, sort of framework of talking about how one engages in counseling. And I think up until this point, as Americans dealing with issues of race and systemic racism, um, we've been in that sort of phase one of counseling when you um, are just kind of, you know, getting a sense of what is the topic and you kind of sort of dance around it and um, you, you do some surface work, right? But um, you're not perhaps perhaps ready to dive deep yet because we're just kind of getting to know each other, right? We're just starting to build relationship. Um, in phase two of counseling, at least from what I've you know, heard from my colleague, is that that's when you've established a relationship and now you're ready to dig deep, right? You're ready to dig deep and you're ready to hold up some ugly truths and you're you know, not necessarily calling a person out, but you're calling them in into a space to kind of help them figure out what's going on and how do we then move to action. And I finally feel like as a nation, perhaps we are um, once again at stage one, but open to stage two, right? We are open to um, holding the mirror up to ourselves and seeing, oh, that's what's embedded in me. That's the bias that I hold. Oh, that's the prejudice that I hold. And I believe that about myself. And now I'm really um, intentional about doing something about it, right? So I'm no longer in a state of denial. I'm not a racist. Uh, I have black friends, so I can't be racist or, you know, I have fill in the blank, so I can't be that, right? Um, we're past that. And I think we're, we're at a point as a nation where we're really ready to say, um, this is systemic, right? It's not just individuals having this experience, it's systemic. The systems are made up of people. So how, as a person, how am I contributing to this? Um, how am I complicit in this? What work do I need to do as an individual so that then with that systemic view, I'm now able to change the environments that I'm in. I'm able to change the culture in the communities and in um, segments of society in which I, I exist. Um, so for me, that's what, that's what makes me optimistic. Good, I, 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 I'm optimistic too. I mean, to be honest with you, I've just, the, the amount of attention and just the shift in conversations that we're having 
is optimistic. I mean, we still have a long way to go, obviously, um, which, you know, I guess transition into a different question, the future question that I, I send to you, because it seems like it goes along with this course. And again, I'm coming at it from a, from a white guy. I'm a white middle-aged man who, who has had all the privileges of being a white man throughout, you know, most of my life. Um, so I haven't seen it. And, you know, being a younger, when I was younger and, you know, when I was in my twenties, we had the Rodney King uh, riots in Los Angeles. And even then I took a very defensive posture of like, well, I, that, you know, that's not me. I mean, I wouldn't, that's a few bad apples. It's a couple of bad cops. You know, why, why are we making such a big deal out of it? You know, fast forward to today and it's about conversations, educating yourself and understanding how the system is, was, was built on racism was built on social inequalities and to keep it that way has been enlightening for me. But there are, I mean, there are a lot of students, you know, and particularly white students who see this at a distance at an arm's length saying what you were saying, like, I'm not a racist. I mm -hmm. don't say racist things. I don't even see color, et cetera, et cetera. So they might be confused at why are so many people, you know, using, taking this opportunity right now to, to, to make a statement, you know, why are so many people getting involved? So, what do you say to them? What do you say to students who might be sitting on the sidelines right now, you know, with that defensive stance of like, gosh, this really doesn't affect me. Um, what should they know? What would you tell them? I think that's a great question. And, and I think what I would tell them is that to your point, I, it's important for us to be respectful of where people are. And based on our own identities, we have different lenses and we have different experiences. And, and so in no way do I want to invalidate someone who says, um, because of my identities, I have not been impacted this, by this, and so I don't understand. Um, and I think that's where that person needs to start. Um, I don't understand, yet I'm willing to learn more. Yet I'm willing to see the other perspective. Where we are lost as a society is where I say, I don't understand, therefore your perspective is not valid, right? So as you said, as a, as a, as a white, and I'm assuming cisgender male, who uh, perhaps, you know, again, has not been impacted by this issue because of your identities, uh, it's okay to say, I, I, I don't know what it's like to be stopped by the police simply because I'm an African-American driving a car. Right. I don't know what it's like, you know, my own personal experience is to be in a store and, you know, have a cashier in front of you talk very kindly to um, the white woman standing in front of you. But then when they get to you, um, you know, their, their attitude changes and they're rude and, you know, and they have to sort of look you up in the bag bad checkbook or they assume that the $50 bill that you gave them is counterfeit, right? You don't know those experiences, but be willing to hear about that and be willing to accept that that is the experience of others. And if you understand and are willing to accept that that is experiences of, of others, that opens us up as individuals to sort of say, well, why didn't I know that? Why didn't I know that people are having that experience? How do I feel about people having that experience? Um, how am I even implicated in that, right? Um, so then it opens us up to do some, some, some deep exploration within ourselves, right? So, so we can perhaps maybe get to a point where we say, I've never, you know, I'm not, I, I don't see myself as someone who would do that. I'm not a racist or I, I'm not a sexist or I'm not homophobic. Um, but again, understanding that it's systemic and it is about individual relationships, have I contributed to other people engaging that behavior in ways that I'm not aware of, right? And therefore, I'm now complicit. So perhaps I've never used the N-word or called someone the N-word, um, but has someone said that in my presence and I never said anything? 
Hmm. That now raises these sort of deep questions about what does it mean to then be impacted and affected by this? Because you were impacted by it. It was said to you in a space, right? And, And you were affected and you chose not to do anything. You chose not to say anything. Um, so, so really, I think, again, it's important for us to honor and recognize that because of our identities, we truly do have different experiences. But the moment we become open to hearing a different perspective, um, to validating other people's lived experiences, I think as humans, that opens us up to be inquisitive, to be reflective, Um, And then again, recognizing that we're part of broader systems and we're part of broader communities um, and we are intended to be connected to one another, I I would hope for many people then raises that question as to, well, why didn't I know about that? I now, I care about this person and this is impacting them. What can I do about that? What can I do to change that? And when we lead with those kinds of questions, that's when we see the kind of internal transformation that is so important, right? People sort of asking themselves uh, those difficult questions about the ways in which perhaps they've been complicit, they've contributed, right? In ways that maybe aren't as nefarious as other actions, right? I didn't put a swastika in someone's yard. I, you know, didn't, you know, uh, you know, put my knee on someone's neck and, you know, uh, cause them to, 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 to die. I didn't do that. Um, but I've done other things. And then the literature we talk about is the microaggressions. I've engaged in other microaggressions or I've engaged in other um, more implicit actions that still signal um, to those individuals that you are not fully human, you are not fully equal, and you don't um, deserve the rights and privileges of, of being um, um, valued in our society. Yeah, and those, and those are things like moving to the other side of the street if you're crossing, the, you know, if you're walking on a sidewalk or covering Absolutely. your purse. If you Absolutely. get into like those are the ones that I I've heard of numerous yeah. times and went I can't even believe that still happens, but yeah. apparently it does. And so, yeah. so yeah, I think um, a, go ahead. I was gonna say it's important for us. It does happen, right? And and that's that's part of the learning it, it, to recognize that it happens and for us to recognize that we are doing it and then for us to interrogate why we're doing it. And then a lot of the trainings that we do on campus. Uh, with our faculty and staff and students as well, we talk a lot about implicit bias. It is such an important um, thing for us to to recognize and know that implicitly, because of us being social creatures, we are constantly receiving information all the time. And also because of how our brains are hardwired, we are oftentimes taking lots of information and trying to kind of create cognitive shortcuts that help us figure out how to navigate the world. So what I always share in those trainings is that when your mind does that, right, when your mind, let's be honest, if someone says, you know, I'm doing this deep work and I realize when I see a black person, I cross the street, right, or when I see, um, you know, for a woman, when I see a man, I cross the street, right, your deep, deep work is going to tell you, okay, I'm doing that because I'm constantly receiving messages about that, that individual who's part of a collective group. Right? I'm constantly receiving messages about that individual who's part of a collective group. And oftentimes, depending on where they fit in our broader sort of hierarchy in society, um, those messages might be negative. Right? So, so the important thing is for me to recognize I'm receiving that, but I also have agency to, to, be, to recognize that I may be receiving it, but I don't have to believe it. 
So that's where the intentionality and action on our part becomes really important. Because unless we choose to live in a bubble, and perhaps in this COVID-19 world, we might want to, but you know, unless we choose to live in a bubble and completely isolate us from information, um, we are going to be receiving those kinds of shortcuts, right? Um, and again, there are ways to challenge that. Like, for example, we can challenge the media. Why is the media always sort of engaging in practices of depicting African-American males as criminal, right? Like, there's, a, there's, there's work to be done there. But if I've, as I'm receiving that information, I now know that as a person, I have the tools and the ability to analyze what information I'm receiving and change how I'm acting. And that's the important key. That's the really important key. But of course, it also takes a desire to want to change. Right. And that's that. I think that's the important thing for the students that we have right now is that, I mean, I just, just a data point of one, my personal belief, it's, you know, it's a generational thing. I have, I have bias clearly embedded in me, right? That I've slowly over the last few weeks, I've been trying to admit and trying to come to come to a peace with, and it's helped me educate myself and go out and look for stuff. But really the next big social change has got to come from the next generation of students um, who are coming up and replacing us, right? It's hard, it's hard to just flush out implicit bias, as you said. We can train, we can, we can understand it, and we can make a conscious effort to not go down that path and not think that way. Man, it'd be great to have a culture and a society that doesn't even have to make a conscious effort to do that. Like it's just natural not to have these biases, right? And so that that's going to take a generation to change. And I think students, um, especially at at you know the ones at coastal age and the ones that are younger, like our kids, like it's going to be up to them to change. So what, uh, you know, for students that might be listening, how can they can how can they take you know a more active role in mm-hmm. taking part of you know the movement to promote equity and social justice? What resources does Coastal have? Like, what would you tell somebody that walked in and said, I just, what do I do? How do I be more active? Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate that question because I, I think, yeah, the perspective is that it is generational. Each generation is supposed to do better, do better and know better, right? Um, and, and I think, again, what might be different in this moment is that we also recognize that um, as generations know better and do better, they also more are aware of the systems in which these attitudes are also embedded. And so as they become more active, right, in these systems, um, as individual agents, they also then are changing not just their own attitude, but the systems that replicate these kind of um, attitudes. Um, so I would tell students at Coastal, you know, if you're coming in, you're saying, I, I want to be an agent of change. And I, and I recognize that the moment that we're living in um, is not a moment that provides um, justice and liberty for, for all, right? Um, I would say that there are lots of different resources at, campus, uh, at Coastal and on our campus. Um, and so, for example, we do have the Office of Diversity and Inclusion, and that is part of our Division of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And, and that is an office that is mostly faculty and staff facing, but again, does a lot of this deep work in having and facilitating these kinds of dialogues with, with, with faculty and staff. For our students, we have our Intercultural Inclusion Student Service Office, um, it, affectionately also known as IS. And so again, Intercultural Inclusion Student Service Office. Um, and that is an office, a resource on campus for our students as well as faculty and staff. But it's a resource where there are lots of opportunities through various programs, through various trainings, um, through various activities, um, 
educational forums um, to, to, to better, to learn more first about the various identities that we all inhabit, to learn more about those skills and habits of mind um, that will allow us to do some of the, the internal transformation that we just sort of, that we just spoke about a few moments ago, um, but then also allow students as part with their education to think about how do they then embed themselves in as actors into systems to change what's happening, not just on an individual level, but also to change it on a systemic level, right? Um, so, so that's when it becomes really important for our students in, in terms of getting various forms of knowledge to then begin to think about if I know I have these biases and they show up in this particular way, um, how might those biases also be showing up in some of the decision-making spaces, right? Um, so oftentimes we find, and through initiatives, even in the Intercultural Inclusion Student Service Office, a lot of our students become um, student leaders. They become active on campus as well as the broader community and thinking about how do I become part of bigger conversations, larger conversations, where I can not only then focus on how do I show up as an individual, um, but then also how do I take this knowledge and help us interrogate policies that we implement, um, practices that are sort of widespread known, but yet may, um, uh, you know, unintentionally or sometimes intentionally harm people from underrepresented groups and marginalized groups. Um, so I would definitely encourage our students on our campus take advantage of all the opportunities through our Division of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, but particularly through Intercultural Inclusion Student Services uh, to, to, to increase your knowledge, but also increase your skills and habits of mind so that ultimately then you can see yourself as part of a broader collective to work with other students on campus, whether it be through student organizations, um, whether it be through organizations off campus, but you can see yourself then working with others to change the systems around us. Yeah, these students are, these are the next politicians and the next, mm -hmm. next legislators and the next yep. college administrators that are going to be changing things. So yeah, yeah. I yeah. agree. I think it's really important for them. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I recently, my wife shared uh, a clip from Jane Elliott, you know, uh, an educator uh, who, who for a long time did an experiment with brown-eyed, blue-eyed people and, you know, basically created implicit racism between brown-eyed and racist, uh, brown-eyed and blue-eyed people in the same classroom and showed how, I mean, it's just a, fantac uh, a fantastic uh, demonstration of how we basically breed bias, you know, we breed racism and we have for so many years uh, that it's actually promising. And, and you know, and she, and she says straight out that, you know, all white people are racist. And I think that's when I remember when I was, when I was early in my career, I took offense to that. And I went, no, no, of course I, you know, I'm not racist. And, you know, and, but of course she says, you know, that, that, you know, we can get over that through education and educating and yes. understanding, you know, um, understanding the plight and understanding the systems that exist right now, even though, again, we don't uh, particularly touch us, but they touch everybody and someday they might touch us, right? They might touch, you know, if, if we continue to have this idea that we can uh, oppress uh, a certain race or a certain class, uh, you know, or a certain gender, then, you know, what's to say that at some point that turns around and starts facing us too. And we just, it can't happen without the leadership of younger students that are educated and understand it. So, um, I mean, yeah. And I think I would add to that. I do think that, Racism um, in this moment and the way in which, you know, we structurally understand 
racism is the oppression of underrepresented groups in this context, groups that are non-white. Um, I would say even as we understand it now, right, in its pure definition, um, does impact white people, right? And so in addition to Jane Elliott, there's also people like Peggy McIntosh um, uh, and individuals like Robin D'Angelo as well who talk about that, yes, this is impactful. And even though you may not recognize it in the context of um, living in a system that affords you unearned privilege simply because of a particular um, phenotype or skin color, um, we are all being hurt by ex existing systems of, of, of racism as well as other isms, right? We're all being hurt by that because we miss out on the opportunity um, to, to be fully human, to fully engage with others, right? To live up to, in the context of a state of America, our, our democratic ideals of creating society where all really are, are, um, are, are truly free and, and equal and have liberty. Um, so there are some real ways in, in which other, you know, people who may, again, based on their identities, feel like, oh, I don't really suffer from racism. They are being hurt by this as well. And so, you know, it, it really becomes important for us to change our orientation and recognize until all are free, none are free. Um, and until all are liberated, none are liberated. And when we take on that philosophy, then we can begin to, again, doing some deep internal work, figure out the ways in which perhaps, even if we're not part of these dominant groups, we absolutely have been hurt by this. And doing this work, whatever that work is for you, right? And in many ways for many of our um, people who might be listening who, who are white, that means um, showing up and serving as an ally. Um, doing that work, yes, it is important for those individuals who, again, are part of um, communities that are um, oppressed and communities that are ex experiencing severe discrimination. Um, but you're also doing it for yourself. You're also doing it for yourself because think about how much you've lost. Um, you know, so an example that always comes to mind for me, I have some of my best friends, and I probably just didn't start with that way because sometimes we use that, but some of my best friends really are not African-American, right? Some, one of my best friends in particular um, is, is a white woman. Um, and, and I think about the ways in which if both of us hadn't done some deep, deep work, we would have missed out on the richness of that relationship, right? And we could have perhaps had like a superficial relationship, hey, how are you, whatever. But because we both recognize the ways in which we are oppressed by the system around us, we have done some deep, deep work in our relationship and, and, and it's been um, so fruitful, so, um, so satisfying in a way that it would, would not be, frankly, I would argue, it would not be had we um, both not come to a place to recognize that we are both being hurt by um, the systems around us. So I really would employ people to, to think about that orientation in their thinking. You might not be the person who is most likely based on your identity to experience, have the experiences of a George Floyd or the, the experiences of Breonna Taylor and so many other people who have been discriminated against and hurt and harmed and killed because of their identities. Um, but when that happens, that is harming you. And I would really um, implore people to think about how that is harming you. Right, no, that's, that's fantastic. So we're uh, right up against the end. Anything uh, closing you'd like to, to talk about, mention? Yeah, I would just say I. this is a really wonderful um, moment to be at Coastal Carolina University. I am so thrilled by our community. Our community made a commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion 
um, long before I had the opportunity to join the community in 2018. Uh, in 2016, or beginning in 2016, the community really took an opportunity to, to reassess what is it that we want our students to learn? What is the value of education? Um, and, and what is important for our students to be able to, to take into the world? And, and through that, that, you know, that moment of introspection, that moment of reflective um, thought, our community really did the deep work and decided that diversity, equity, and inclusion are core values, and that we would commit our, ourselves not just in word, uh, but we would commit ourselves in both action um, and in values to um, creating an environment where our students were learning how to um, exist and in, in cooperate with others in the 21st century, which is a multicultural world and multicultural society, but not just for our students, for our faculty and staff as well. Um, so I, I just, I really applaud our, our community. I applaud our um, our leadership. I applaud every person at Coastal that contributed to that that work in our strategic plan. Because and because of the strategic plan, that is why the Division of Diversity and Inclusion exists, and why the Office of Diversity and Inclusion exists. Um, and so, I think we recognize as a community that we have a lot of work to do, just like America, right? Just like the, everyone around us, we have a lot of work to do. But we are committed to this work, and it's that commitment and it's that passion and dedication to to being committed to creating and reimagining a new coastal and a new America and a new world um, that just makes me so thankful to be part of this community. Yeah, well, I applaud you too. And I, I am so happy that we, you brought your energy and your enthusiasm and your passion down from Pennsylvania down to the beach. Because I feel like just having you on staff gives us a huge edge up compared to other universities. So, Dr. Atia Stokes-Brown is the Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Coastal Carolina University. Thank you for joining us. You are also uh, apparently a gifted modern dancer. Will we be seeing you performing at Coastal once we get this uh, quarantine lifted? Oh, thank you. I um. I, I think I'm in retirement. <laughs> um, there, there have been occasions where I have come out of retirement and performed. And so if those opportunities present itself, I will, I will definitely be open to the opportunity. But I like to, to say at this point, I'm, I'm in retirement. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the incredible feedback and the incredible uh, input. I thank you for your time. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to spend time with members of our community. And it's been a pleasure to get to know you. And that does it for today's show. This episode was produced by me, Peter Gaska, the director of the Community and Business Engagement Institute at Coastal Carolina University. Music for this episode was developed and mixed by Jeffrey Lippert and by bensound.com. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the host and the guest and do not reflect the opinions of Coastal Carolina University, for sure. Thank you for joining us. This has been Beyond the Wall. Thank you.